It's Central Time. I'm Rob Barrett. You're with us here on the Ideas Network. Seems like everything can be smart nowadays in the world of technology, from phones to common household items like refrigerators and doorbells. While high-tech gadgets and apps can make our lives easier, the companies that make them are also in the business of collecting, even selling, our personal data. It's easy to see how something like a smartphone or fitness tracker could capture our data. Sometimes we're knowingly giving these devices our personal info. But a recent report from Mozilla's Privacy Not Included project found that the worst culprit when it comes to our data privacy could be our cars. Looking at the privacy policies of automakers, like all of them, the report finds data collected, used, even sold, including things like location tracking, the music we listen to, and even your sex life. You could join in at 800-642-1234. What do you think of companies collecting personal data through the products they sell and that we buy and use? Is it a trade-off you're willing to make in exchange for the convenience of smart devices? Do you have questions about cars, the computer technology, the apps that go along with them, and the info that they do collect and what they do with it? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800 642 one two three four or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Jen Kaltreiter is a privacy researcher and founder of the Privacy Not Included Project at the Mozilla Foundation. Jen, welcome to Central Time. Hey, thanks for having me. All right. Now you've looked at a lot of different product lines in Privacy Not Included. Cars apparently stand out as across the board the worst when it comes to our data. Why? Oh, yeah. Cars were bad. Um, You know, we've been reviewing fitness trackers and smart speakers and robot vacuums, and you see some bad things. But then you look at cars and you consider the fact that modern cars, cars built in the last three to five years, have sensors that can tell how much you weigh or where you're going and how fast. They have microphones. They have cameras facing in. They have cameras facing out. They have connected services that... um, you know, let you listen to the radio or the tell you where to go. They have apps that help you start the car remotely. And all these things are collecting and sharing data back to the car companies, which, uh, be honest, uh, aren't the most ethical when it comes to privacy based on what we can tell in their privacy policies. We'll dig into those privacy policies in just a moment. I want to talk about the privacy not included project a little bit. Cars and, as you mentioned, lots of other products. What made you want to dig deep into the privacy policies behind the products we use? Well, nobody likes to read privacy policies. So, you know, I, I, one day I woke up and said, I'll do it for you. Uh, and so back in 2017, more and more of our devices were c- getting connected to the Internet. And there were few sites out there for, you know, features and reliability, consumer reports and CNET and places like that. But nobody was looking specifically at privacy. And, and Mozilla's um mission in the world is to make the internet better. So we decided let's do a buyer's guide for privacy and security of our connected products. And we started with the smart speakers and fitness trackers. And over the years, we've done any number of things, mental health apps, reproductive health apps, video call apps, robot vacuums, smart watches for kids. So, you know, you can go to privacynotincluded.org and, and read a review and know if what you're buying is good or bad or if there's a better option. Now, digging into the privacy policy of cars, uh, it seems uh, some models are, are bad and they range from bad to terrible. Uh, what were some of the things that stood out to you as you started to go through these privacy policies when it came to uh, the data that, that automakers can collect and, and what they do with it? 
Yeah, cars can collect a huge amount of data. And, you know, we, we, we thought of cars as a private space, you know, a place where you can have a conversation with your kid or cry after a breakup or sing at the top of your lungs. But nowadays, cars uh, have a lot of, you know, like I said, sensors. Um, you know, we got a camera on, on a lot of our faces to see if we're looking like we're sleepy. And, and those cameras can, can see us at all times and cameras facing out. And, and then all the sensors these cars have, you know, the privacy policies say they can collect a ton of data on not just where we are, but how long a trip we're taking and where we're going and where we're stopping along the way and what internet radio station we're listening to and, and how many people might be in the car, whether you're using your seatbelt. And then, you know, you plug in those connected services and they're like, you know, hey, where did you go? Where did you stop? Outside of what store did you stop? Um, and it's just a lot, a lot of data. And then there were some things that really surprised us in the privacy policies. When you're reading a privacy policy and you see that a company says they can collect your sexual activity and use it to facilitate direct marketing, you're like, wait a minute, <laughs> like that raises an eyebrow. Uh, why does a car need that to provide me the service of getting from point A to point B safely or genetic information? And so, yeah, cars, I think car companies were kind of counting on us uh, being, you know, not paying attention, uh, but it's time to pay attention. Talking to Jen Kaltreider from the Privacy Not Included Project at the Mozilla Foundation, looking at cars uh, described in their research as the worst product category we have ever reviewed for privacy. You could join in at 800-642-1234 with your questions about this, your worries, 800-642-1234. Let's go to your calls now. Will is with us in Oconomowoc. Will, hi. Hey there. Um, well, I, after like 16 years of having my original car, which was a Chevy Trailblazer, and it, I don't think it had anything <laughs> other than, a, the, you know, just the starter battery. Um, I got a 2020 Subaru Ascent, and um, as, as your caller is mentioning, yeah, it, it definitely does watch my face. It's got that eyesight feature. And as a teacher, um, our school district got hacked, so all my biometrics were taken. I, I got told that I had the ability, if I wanted to join in a class action lawsuit, but really there was no like recourse for me to, and you know my fingerprints out there. And at the end of the day, companies uh, bartering and, and doing what they want with this information is one thing, but it seems like increasingly this stuff is up for grabs for hackers and and if the companies don't want the consumer themselves to know about it then the companies probably really don't want us to know about how secure their silos are for this data uh whether or not it gets hacked by bad actors or other companies well thanks a lot for the call jen that is something you're worried about car companies have all this data that they say they can collect on us what do we know about how secure that data is in their hands well, interestingly, the majority, I believe the majority of the co companies we reviewed actually did have serious security breaches or leaks in the past three years. That's something we looked at is known track record of companies and Toyota and, and, and on down the line have had, you know, millions of, of, of personal people's personal information leaked, um, security vulnerabilities in the cars that could let people access it things like that. And, and so that's not uncommon. And on top of that, when you read a privacy policy, you'll often stumble across the section that will say something to the effect of, hey, we can't guarantee anything is going to be 100% sure that you share with us over the internet. 
So just know that we can't guarantee that your data is going to be safe with us once you share it. So they tell you that in their privacy policies. Thanks a lot for that call at 800-642-1234. Sorry about that hack at your workplace. Uh, we'll go now to Dennis in Two Rivers. Dennis, hi. Hi. Uh, when I use software, whether I buy it or whether it's free, I end up uh, seeing now and then when I use it or when I log in, I need to agree to the privacy policy and the terms and conditions. So if I buy a car or some other product, that a physical product, am I going to end up agreeing to new versions of their policy, policies and terms and conditions just to keep using the products? Dennis, thanks a lot for the call. Jen, that's something you looked at, uh, consent, when we purchase the car and uh, as we use it. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you know, most people don't ever, you know, who bought a car don't be like, well, when did I consent to this privacy and data collection? You know, we saw one one car maker said that just something as simple as becoming a passenger in a connected car, they considered you a user, which meant you had consented to their privacy policy. Um, so a lot of times this the consent that they're saying that they're getting from users is really not explicitly given. And then one of my favorite parts of reading these privacy policies was the lines that we saw in it where they said, it's up to you, the driver of the car, to let any passenger that gets in the car with you to know our privacy policies about data collection, which makes us chuckle because nobody picks up their buddy to go to a movie and says, wait, before we leave, I got to review the privacy policy first. Maybe you do. Well, <laughs> I'm not that bad. I'm close, though. <laughs> talking, talking to Jen Kaltrider. Thanks a lot for that call. Jen is a privacy researcher and founder of the Privacy Not Included Project at the Mozilla Foundation. And we're talking about a new report that Jen co-authored, finding that cars are the worst offenders when it comes to data privacy. You could join in at 800-642-1234. Do you drive a smart car? Would you... Would knowing that a car company is collecting your personal data make you think twice about purchasing from them? How do you feel about cars using artificial intelligence? Do you think the extra bells and whistles are worth the privacy trade-offs? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. You can also post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. We'll continue the conversation coming up here on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network. I'm Rob Verrett. Right now, we're picking up the conversation about cars and data privacy with Jen Kaltrider, privacy researcher and founder of the Privacy Not Included Project at the Mozilla Foundation. You can join in at 800-642-1234. What do you think about companies sharing and selling your data? How about cars? Are you surprised to hear how much data car companies can collect from you while you use their product, whether you're driving or just catching a ride with someone else? Do you want to see regulations to change things? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Let's go back to your calls now. John is with us in Madison. John, hi. Hey, um, I am wondering how many of these data collection uh, mechanisms could be disabled by the end user. Interesting question, John. Uh, can we opt out with our own cars, John? Well, it's really hard to opt out. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. Tesla, a very connected car, has in their privacy policy, they say, hey, you, you buy our car because it's connected. Um, but if you want to opt out for data privacy reasons, sure, go ahead. Here's how. But they go on to say in that same paragraph in their privacy policy, oh, by the way, if you opt out, your car might become inoperable or not receive safety updates and become unsafe. 
And that's pretty common with these cars. They seem to link some of the safety features to the, the data sharing in ways that makes it hard for users to opt out um, and then still retain a, a safe, operable car in the ways that you want it to. Thanks a lot for that call at 800-642-1234. Robert joins us now in Abrams. Robert, hi. Hey there. I uh, just wanted to make a quick uh, observation. It feels as though we've enabled a society with these uh, legal agreements where we've created uh, a disproportionate power aggregating to those who actually uh, have all of this data. It's almost like the a relationship of the one-way mirror where they have knowledge and insight into us, but we don't even know who they are. Um, I think it's a pretty uh, dystopian view of something as simple as transporting ourselves and our families to and from our places of business, school. Uh, it's a really distor- a bad distortion for society, in my opinion. Robert, thanks a lot for the call. Jen, you've spent a lot of time researching and thinking about this. Do you feel that uh, almost dystopian uh, feeling about this data collection that Robert has? Oh, gosh, absolutely. And I've been doing this since 2017, so I've just seen it get worse and worse year after year. And every year I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is horrible. And then the next year it gets worse. And one of the problems is that the United States doesn't have a federal privacy law. You know, the European Union has GDPR, which protects them, gives gives users the right for things like to access and delete their data, which we don't have across the board here in the United States. So I think it's past time for us to have a federal privacy law. I think, you know, car companies aren't going to change on their own. And so, you know, people should be getting mad and contacting their elected officials and saying, hey, let's let's fix this, because it is getting more and more dystopian. Thanks for the call, Robert. Jen, with a lot of products, we might say, well, company A, I don't like what they're doing here. I'll go buy from company B. Uh, There is no company B, according to your report. They're all pretty bad, right? There's no, like, hero of the story here. Yeah, there there is no hero. All 25 of the car brands we reviewed earned our privacy not included warning label, which is a first. Um, You know, we have standards, but we don't think our standards are so strict that companies shouldn't be able to meet them. And so, yeah, they're all bad. And 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 it's hard when you want to tell people, here's some things that we think you can do to actually legitimately protect your privacy with cars. All I can really tell people is to get mad and call your elected official, which doesn't feel like much. But with every movement, there's a tipping point where people finally say enough. You know, maybe this will be the time when people say this is enough. Let's let's fix this. This is not right. What have you been hearing from people since this report came out? I know you've been talking about it in the media. Are you getting a sense that people are getting uh, mad as heck, uh, not willing to take it anymore, and and reaching out to call for some kind of changes here? Yeah, you know, I've been really pleasantly surprised by the response that we've gotten to this research as we were doing it. Um, the three of us, the, the three researchers that I work with, we were all like, holy cow, this is so bad. I can't believe how bad it is. And how come nobody's talking about it? And we're like, oh, it's it's our responsibility to get people talking about it. And this is step one. You know, I get asked questions a lot about, well, how are they collecting it? And things that I can't answer because, you know, we couldn't dig into the technical side. So there's so much more to look into. And, and I've talked to people that are like, hey, I'm an engineer. I'm going to look into this more deeply. Um, you know, I've had media outlet, outlets contact and, and be like, we're going to do a deeper dive on this. And so that's exactly exactly what we're hoping to see, that this is step one. Um, and people are starting to not just be aware, but to care. 
Um, and and again, you know, car companies don't have a, a long history of ethical behavior. You know, I'm old enough to remember the Ford Pinto. And so, you know, this is, you know, it, it took a lot of time to make changes on things like, you know, seatbelts in cars. And so it might take some time on this, but, you know, the ball is rolling and I'm really happy to see you all um, paying attention and, and talking about it. Jen, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us today. Yes, thanks so much for having me. Been talking to Jen Kaltreiter, privacy researcher and founder of the Privacy Not Included Project at the Mozilla Foundation. We've been talking about her recent report showing that cars are the worst product category for privacy and what consumers can do to protect their personal data in a sea of smart products. You can check out that report. We're going to get a link up at WPR.org slash Central Time. If you have concerns, if you've encountered things like this yourself, if you work in the automotive industry, love to hear your perspective. Still time. You can head over to the Ideas Network Facebook page or email ideas at WPR.org. The state is reviewing Milwaukee businesses' suspicious use of COVID relief funds. The Evers administration says the business in question is the only one to be suspended out of a group of 38 diverse business grants. Corinne Hess reports that the case illustrates some of the challenges of distributing millions of dollars in federal funds. It was late August 2022, and Cynthia Brown was getting agitated. This is Cynthia Brown calling from CRC, Employment and Entrepreneurial Services, Inc., Brown was waiting for a $2.9 million check for a grant she'd received from the Wisconsin Department of Administration. Her Milwaukee-based business was floundering, and she wanted a meeting with a DOA administrator. I need to set up a meeting with her, ASAP. We're currently looking to lay off staff um, due to funding shortage. A year later, Brown's embroiled in a dispute with the state. After DOA officials say she's failed to account for how she spent $1 million of pandemic relief funds. The state suspended Brown's grant in April after an investigation couldn't verify how she spent the money. Records obtained by Wisconsin Public Radio show Brown used the money to pay herself and her family members. She also spent state grant money on bowling parties, DoorDash deliveries, and four-foot-tall letters spelling out the word boss. Brown founded her nonprofit in 2015 to help disenfranchised communities get back on their feet. Her 12-page application for the state's diverse business grant program highlighted her plans to help Black-owned businesses bounce back from the pandemic with boot camps, night classes, and technical support. WPR couldn't find evidence that these events happened, and Brown's attorney declined to answer a detailed list of questions. Brown's case represents less than 1% of the federal pandemic aid Wisconsin received, but it highlights the challenges state departments faced distributing an unprecedented amount of federal aid. Bob Westbrooks led the Federal Pandemic Response Accountability Committee, He says too often money ended up in the wrong hands because of a lack of oversight at the federal and state levels. It's disturbing and and bothersome, but it's not surprising. I said there's 426 federal programs that distributed aid. We saw fraud across the spectrum in these various programs. Under Wisconsin law, the governor has broad discretion over how to distribute federal pandemic aid. 
Besides creating the Diverse Business Grant, Governor Tony Evers has used funds on programs aimed at helping small businesses, schools, and workforce development. Republicans have repeatedly clashed with the administration over his spending decisions. Last year, a GOP-requested audit of federal spending found DOA had not provided enough information about how state officials decided who would get COVID funds. During a hearing about the audit in February, Republican Senator Eric Wimberger called for more transparency. There were decisions or priorities made somewhere along the way as to what was related to pandemic relief or important, so to speak, and we don't really know how those decisions were made. In an interview in July, DOA Secretary Kathy Blumenfeld said the administration made its decisions publicly. Whenever funding comes from the federal government, it comes with transparency and reporting. And we even on our own stood up our own website, which won three awards across the country uh, for transparency and clarity. Brown has hired a Milwaukee attorney who says she's providing the state with an explanation of her expenses. In a statement, he says it's normal for audits to occur. Of the $1 million Brown spent, state auditors now say only $131,000 was spent on eligible expenses under the grant. That means Brown could be responsible for paying back nearly $870,000. Corrine Hess, Wisconsin Public Radio. You can find that story and a lot more from the Wisconsin Public Radio News Team online anytime at WPR.org. Stay on top of Wisconsin and national news and share interesting news stories with your family, your friends, and your enemies. You can also listen live to the Ideas Network there or check out our archived conversations if you missed something awesome in the past. You can do all those things also by downloading the WPR app to a smartphone near you. I'm Rob Ferret. Stick around. There's more to come on Central Time. You're listening to the Ideas Network. This is Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. Legislative Republicans released a plan on Monday that would fund updates to American Family Field and keep the brewers in Milwaukee through at least 2050. The plan would use $600 million in taxpayer funds over that time span for long-term renovations and improvements to the stadium where the brewers play. About a third of that would be funded by Milwaukee City and County, though local leaders there have pushed back against paying that much. We're talking now about long-term plans aimed at updating American Family Field and keep the brewers in the state, and you could join in at 800-642-1234. Do you think Wisconsinites in general, or if you live in the Milwaukee area, do you think you benefit from having a Major League Baseball team in the state, in the community? Do you think it's uh, okay that the state and local governments would pick up part of the tab for renovations to the stadium? Join in with your thoughts or your questions. It's kind of complicated at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Tom Dakin is a business reporter for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Tom, welcome back to Central Time. 
Yeah, thanks for having me. Before we dig into the numbers, Tom, let's talk about the why. Why it seems like people generally agree that some kind of money needs to be spent on this stadium. What's the current situation uh, before we get a package like this? Well, the current situation is the stadium is not owned by the Brewers. It's owned by the public in the form of the Southeast Wisconsin Professional Baseball Park District that was created by the state legislature and Governor Thompson back in the mid-90s to help finance what was then called Miller Park. Uh, the, the stadium district leases the stadium to the Brewers. That lease runs at least through the end of 2030, and that lease obligates the stadium district to pay for major capital improvements, most major capital improvements. There are some that are considered discretionary. So, for example, when the Brewers opened that uh, golf simulator, X-Golf America, last September, that was on their dime. Uh, the new Line and Kugel's Barrel Yard restaurant, Brewers paid for that. But most of the capital improvements that happen there are the, are the responsibility of the public. So there is a fund set aside to pay for those improvements going forward. Uh, that was from that 0.1% sales tax that we used to have in southeastern Wisconsin. That tax ended in March 2020, and now the the funds are are running short. There there don't appear to be enough to to pay for improvements uh, between now and the end of 2030, and what the response from the Republicans this week was, was to create a a larger fund going forward and to have the brewers, the, excuse me, the brewers extend their lease from the end of 2030 to the end of 2050. And now where we're at is the debate on that proposal that will go to the state legislature and to Governor Evers, and then ultimately to the uh, Milwaukee County Board and the Milwaukee Common Council for their approval, since there is a local funding component. Yeah, can you give us an outline now of that plan from Republicans? Uh, what's the money? Who's it coming from? Sure. Well, it's uh, it's a total of seven hundred million dollars. A hundred million of that coming from the Brewers. The six. You've got four hundred million coming from the state of Wisconsin, and uh, two hundred million coming uh, from uh, Milwaukee County and the city of Milwaukee. And the. The state money is essentially going to be allocated on a yearly basis by virtue of state income tax revenue and, and, and sales tax revenue. The income tax revenue basically being generated by brewer employees, including the players, as well as players for teams uh, from other teams, uh, the brewer's opponents, when they play in Milwaukee. And essentially, the, the idea there is from, from, the, from the perspective of the Republican authors of this legislature is, look, we're taking money that's flowing in right now from, from this activity and we're dedicating it to the stadium. Of course, if they weren't dedicated to the stadium, that money would flow to the state treasury in general, right? But nonetheless, that's sort of the, the, the approach they're taking. And the Republican uh, legislators, uh, this led by uh, Speaker Voss and, and, and his, his, his co-colleagues, argue that the city and the county should have to pay a, a, a portion of that funding, saying that they benefit by virtue of the city and county sales taxes. Uh, you might recall the city only got authorization to, to enact a sales tax in, uh, in July through legislation that was passed by the Republican majority and signed by Governor Evers to help uh, the city shore up its finances. But that's essentially where we're at. And Tom, you wrote that uh, the newness of that sales tax is raising is part of the question mark uh, from city and county leaders saying, 
okay, you're asking us to pay for this. We're not sure how much that uh, that sales tax is going to pay off. What are some of the concerns, uh, in addition to that, that we're hearing from local leaders about uh, their price tag under this proposal? Right. I mean, that's that's one of them. The other one is just, frankly, very straightforward. The state of Wisconsin fiscally is in, is in good shape. I mean, we <laughs> we have a large surplus right now that, uh, of course, that's a matter of discussion as to how it gets spent. Governor Evers would like to spend much of it. The, the Republicans would like to uh, return it to the taxpayers in the form of, of, of reduced taxes. The city and the county don't have that. Uh, they're They're in better shape. Thank goodness, because of the the increased uh, state revenue sharing and and the uh, county being able to raise its taxes, being able to enact the sales tax, but they're not flush with cash either. So the arguments from uh, from Mayor Cavalier Johnson, County Executive David Crawley, is to say, look, we want the brewers to stay, but our financial challenges should be taken into account when you're putting together a, a public financing package. Talking to Tom Dakin, business reporter at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel about this proposal from Republican leaders in the state legislature on a funding package for the publicly owned stadium that houses the Milwaukee Brewers. You could join in with your thoughts, your reactions, your questions at 800-642-1234. Let's go to your calls. Jeff is with us in Superior. Jeff, hi. Good afternoon. Thank you for this opportunity to uh, talk about this. I have spoken with Governor Evers personally when he's come to Superior, and he's promised me and others, even in the media and elected officials, that he would support funding Patterson Park. But when it came right down to it, he vetoed, line item vetoed funding for the park. So he turned his face on us, and I would not support funding a, 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 a stadium when our public parks and our, our tourism dollars are reliant on, on our public parks. We get a lot more tourists to our state parks than we do to a, a baseball stadium. So I would not support funding any stadium until we take care of our parks in northern Wisconsin. Jeff, thanks for the call. And Jeff making a, a common argument, uh, Tom, that there are other priorities they'd like to see the state turn their money to toward instead of uh, a, a stadium package like this. Is this something you're hearing out there? Well, sure. That's that's you know the the biggest thing you always hear is why should we spend money on the brewers? Why should a, uh, a taxpayer like the gentleman just called have to have to help support uh, improvements at a stadium uh, for a ball team that's owned by a multi multi millionaire, Mark Atanasio? And the response, frankly, is because we have to. Uh, the lease requires us through the through the stadium district to pay for those capital improvements, at least through the end of 2030. Here's here's the way I frame it. Um, it's like you have this obligation that was set back in the mid-90s when the initial legislation was passed that created the stadium district that, that funded what was then Miller Park. The lease obviously contained this clause. I'll bet most MLB Major League Baseball stadiums have similar clauses. Uh, they're, publicly, they're publicly owned. The teams lease them. You have that obligation. Um, it runs through 2030. Now, if 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 you feel as a taxpayer that you don't want the brewers to stay, that's definitely a position that one can take. And you can say, fine, we'll, we'll do what we have to do through the end of 2030. We don't want to be in breach of contract and get sued and lose that lawsuit. But then you have to acknowledge that, yeah, the brewers are likely going to leave or, or certainly the possibility gets greatly increased 
if there is no extension of that lease beyond 2030. And again, maybe people are fine with that. But the one thing I would also point out is, let's hear your ideas as to what to do with an empty ballpark. And 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 maybe it's you tear the thing down and 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 sell the land for development, or maybe you let it sit there and use it for monster truck shows. I don't know, but you can't ignore that issue as well. Thanks for the call, Jeff. Uh, Jimmy joins us now in Valley Junction. Jimmy, hi. Hi, gents. Yeah, I just want listen. The Brewers beat the Cardinals to uh, to get their magic number down a little bit. Uh, so I'm a Brewer fan. I go to a few games, but. I got a couple of questions. What are the brewers paying per year for the lease? And what is American Family and formerly Miller, what were they paying for naming rights? I guess my and my point is if the taxpayers, especially in Milwaukee County, are going to be footing most of the bill, maybe it should be going back to Milwaukee County Stadium. Jimmy, thanks for the call. Tom, first of all, and we've had a few listeners wondering about this. Uh, do we know uh, how much the brewers are paying to lease this publicly operated facility? Yeah, it, the rent's nominal. It runs, I believe, this year, I think it's running like maybe a million to two million a year. Um, here's one way of looking at this. So that $100 million that the brewers have pledged to provide as part of this with the lease extending to the end of 2050. If you took the current terms of the lease, including the, the annual rent that they pay, plus the brewers do make an annual contribution to that repairs fund. Most of it's most of it's coming from us, the taxpayers, but they do provide some money for that every year. Take what the brewers pay annually. Let's extend it out to 2050. That would amount to about $40 million during that period. They're pledging to spend $100 million. So they would, in effect, be spending $60 million more than they're already obligated to spend, if that frames that question more clearly for your listeners. Um, as, far the na- as far as the naming rights question goes, I, I don't know. That probably is proprietary information between the brewers and, in this case, American Family. But I would just point out, American Family is not a party to the lease. They they bought the naming rights. They have their name on it, but they're not a tenant. The brewers are the tenant, and this is really a contract between a tenant, the Milwaukee Brewers, and a landlord, the stadium district. Jimmy, thanks for the call. We're talking to Tom Dakin, business reporter at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, talking to us about the Republican plan released earlier this week to update American Family Field, provide funding, and aim to keep the brewers in Milwaukee through at least 2050. You can join in at 800-642-1234. If you support some level of taxpayer support for long-term upkeep and renovations to American Family Field, maybe even beyond the current contract obligations, is it worth it to put some money in to keep a Major League Baseball team in the state? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll pick up the conversation coming up here on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network. I'm Rob Ferrett. Right now, we're picking up our talk with Milwaukee Journal Sentinel business reporter Tom Dakin about a plan to update American Family Field, keep the Brewers in Milwaukee through 2050, with a combination of funding from the state, the Brewers organization, and city and county governments in Milwaukee. And you can join in at 800-642-1234. What do you want to know about the roughly 30-year plan to finance Brewers Stadium renovations. 
Do you think that uh, the city, the county, the state benefit by having major league teams in them? Is it worth some public support? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Let's go back to your calls. James is with us in Milwaukee. James, hi. Hi. Um, I have to say this much. Perhaps Milwaukee does benefit from having a pro baseball team here. But I'm watching as Milwaukee County cuts back on its transit system and transportation services for the disabled. And if we, by that, I I should say the county, if the county can't support those things, then certainly there ought not to be any spending on a ballpark. The priorities should be different. James, thanks a lot for the call, Tom. A, a local objection there saying, hey, we can't afford some of the stuff we already need to keep up. Yeah, and that's exactly the argument that the entire County Board of Supervisors made in May when it passed a resolution unanimously opposed to any county money being spent on stadium improvements. And the Milwaukee County Board of Supervisors includes people who are conservative, people who are moderate, people who are liberal, a couple of people who are socialists. And they all agreed on that one point. So definitely they are simpatico with the argument of that caller. Thanks for the call, James. Uh, Tom, I think some of the framing around this deal was, hey, we've got this new uh, shared revenue system in Wisconsin. Things are going to look a little better for Milwaukee, the city, and Milwaukee, the county. Plus, there's that uh, new sales tax option coming along. Uh, are people say hoping that those outweigh the costs that uh, will come in if this deal goes through and the county and the city are on the hook for their part of renovations? Well, that, that's certainly the argument that, again, Speaker Boss and his colleagues are making. They're saying, look, city, you've got a new sales tax. You're you're going to benefit from this by virtue of items sold at Miller Park, or excuse me, Miller Park, I'm showing my age. <laughs> items sold at American Family Field are subject to that sales tax, the city sales tax. Therefore, we're asking you to take some of that revenue and, and kick it into to making improvements. I mean, the city's response uh, from from Mayor Cavalier Johnson and from a lot of the the folks on the Common Council is to say, look, we haven't even implemented this tax yet. It doesn't start until next year. We don't know for sure how much it's going to generate. And and just like what the previous caller alluded to, we, the city, we have other priorities. We like to hire police officers, firefighters, sanitation workers. We'd like to fix up our roads. We have some city parks that could use sprucing up. I mean, the list goes on, right? Those are all typical public services that a city delivers. So I certainly, again, understand the argument that the mayor and and some members of the Common Council have been making. Let's go back to our callers. Nancy is with us now in Milwaukee. Nancy, hi. Hello. Um, If I have understood what Tom Deacon has been so uh, well explaining to us, it would seem that the city, uh, Milwaukee city and county um, residents, are going to be paying the majority of the repairs from here to eternity. And my feeling is that this is one of the best reasons, again, to make city employees and county employees 
we, de- we demand that they return to live in the city of Milwaukee and the county of Milwaukee. That law was rescinded so that city employees whose pensions I am paying as a as a person who lives in Milwaukee myself uh, can live within reasonable distance. I, I, I'm feeling this is the best possible reason to turn that law back so that city and county employees at least have to live here. We're paying their pensions. Nancy, I gotcha. Thanks for the call, Nancy. Tom, take us back to a long-running debate, as Nancy mentioned, uh, resolved uh, by the state legisla- legislature overruling local ordinances uh, requiring uh, local and county employees to live in their community. Uh, does that affect the math on this stadium deal? A lot of the employees uh, who might be paid under these things, uh, well, they'll be taking their money back out of the local community. Mm, I don't I don't know if that has anything more than a minor effect. Mm-hmm. And I, I appreciate Nancy's opinion. Frankly, that ship has sailed. Uh, um, that law was passed. Uh, I believe that was under Governor Scott Walker. I don't see that being rescinded anytime soon, um, regardless of how we feel about it. And, and and I'll just add, I I really think the way to frame this issue, you know, the advocates of of spending money on the stadium argue, in addition to you know the same district having to fill its its obligation of that lease, they'll say, well, gee, you know, it generates X number of jobs, and and it does bring in a certain amount of obviously income tax, sales tax, revenue. You know, those are valid claims. I would say this, if 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 the brewers went away, they would definitely take the uh, the sales, or excuse me, the income tax revenue with them would depart. Sales tax revenue, I mean, a lot of items that are sold in connection to a baseball team are, are essentially discretionary income. So presumably a lot of that income then gets, gets sold to purchase other discretionary income and services. So I don't know that you lose a ton of sales tax revenue. Um, you would lose some jobs, but again, you know, those are those are choices that 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 elected officials have to make. Sorry, I'm being long winded here, but I think the best thing for people to do is to sit down and say to themselves, OK, as a Wisconsin taxpayer. Do how much or how badly do I want to have an MLB team in Wisconsin, specifically in Milwaukee? And if I want to have that MLB team here. I have to be willing to pay for it, and that's just the reality. I certainly respect the position of people who say, no, it doesn't matter to me. Let them leave. I totally get that. I just think if you really want to have an MLB team, you got to acknowledge there are costs, public costs involved. And that's really just part of the equation. And just our last minute or so, Tom, uh, a, a sidebar to this story, Milwaukee Mayor Cavalier Johnson has said the Brewers should build commercial developments around the stadium to bring in more revenue for the city, saying, hey, basically, we've got a baseball stadium and a big parking lot. We can do more <laughs> to develop. Just in a few moments, what are they hoping for? Well, I mean, yeah, they would hope for that some of those parking lots to be developed uh, commercially. Now, you'd have to remove the tax-exempt status on those parking lots that currently exist in order for that to generate property tax revenue for the city or the county. You'd also have some developers who'd have to be willing to step forward and invest uh, their money to do it, and you'd have to have the brewer's willingness to to be a partner with those developers. And the brewer's position on this essentially has been, sounds interesting, we're open to the possibility, but really right now, we as a business, we're focused on getting this this financing package passed, and that's really where they're coming from. Um, I, I will just add, on Monday, the, the, the American family plan dropped. The next day on Tuesday, 
an MLB stadium proposal landed uh, for the Tampa Bay uh, Rays. And it does indeed involve a very large commercial development component with the stadium as the centerpiece of that in us uh, in Florida. Tom, we'll leave it there. Thanks for joining us again. You bet. I enjoyed it. Thanks for all the callers, too. That's Tom Dakin, business reporter for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. He talked to us about a plan to use $600 million in taxpayer funds, uh, some from the state, some from local governments in Milwaukee City and County, over roughly 30 years to update American Family Field as part of an effort to keep the Milwaukee Brewers in Milwaukee through at least 2050. Still time for you to share your thoughts on that. You can email ideas at WPR.org. That's ideas at WPR.org. Coming up tomorrow on The Morning Show with Kate Archer-Kent, Wisconsin has seen some big hospital mergers over the last year or so. Does that change the quality of the services that those hospitals provide? Check in on the state of hospitals here in the state and how they're rated when it comes to quality and the service they provide. If you have a thought on that, you can get the conversation started right now with an email at ideas at WPR.org. Then you can join the conversation with Kate and her guest. That's coming up tomorrow morning at 7.30 here on the Ideas Network. If you're like me, you may find it easy to get songs stuck in your head, even if you don't want them there, especially if you don't want them there. I have this going on right now. I was thinking earlier about classic rock songs with long guitar solos where the solos aren't really all that good, in my opinion. And thinking, man, these particular solos do not justify the length of these solos. I think about this kind of thing a lot. Anyway, the result, always predictable. Those songs, especially the parts I don't like, get stuck in my head until I can find something to replace them with. Now, you may be waiting for me to name names and complain about which solos I don't like. But I won't, because in some cases, the guitarist in question is dead. I don't want to speak ill of them. In other cases, the guitarist is still alive, and I don't want to say bad stuff about them either. You'll have to fill in the gap with your own opinions. Always have a song in your heart, even if you don't like it. This is Central Time. (laughs) 